was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today I am thrilled to welcome my guest, the iconic Julie Budd. As a cabaret singer, she has performed everywhere from the Catskills, where she got her start at the ripe old age of 11, to Caesar's Palace, and opened for George Burns, Frank Sinatra, Liberace, and Bob Hope, among others. You can also hear her many albums, including If You Could See Me Now, Pure Imagination, and They Wrote the Songs. She appeared on screen in Two Lovers, The Devil and Max Devlin, The Carol Burnett Show, The Jim Neighbors Hour, and more, and on stage in Options, Catskills on Broadway, and Out of Town in Wild and Wonderful. She also toured for many years with the great Marvin Hamlish, and charted on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1976 with One Fine Day. So, without further ado, the magnificent Julie Budd. So tell me, what's going on? What do you need to know? Well, I'd love to start by asking you how you first became interested in singing and performing. Well, you know, I was about your age when I, what are you, 13? Yes. Okay. Well, I was a little younger. I'm trying to think. I was, well, I was always a musician, you know, even when I was five, six years old. I have a memory of knowing I was a musician. You know, isn't it funny how young as we were when we started, right? Um, There's a knowingness. There's this, this, this part of us that just knows this is our world. Do you know what I mean? Do you have that feeling too? When you were young and exposed to the arts and watching people and watching interviews and you know what I'm saying? It's like, we have this sense of, it's a knowing. We know this is going to be our world. And were there singers or musicians that you heard at this time that sort of inspired you or you? Well, my mother and father used to go out every Saturday night to the theater. And most of the stuff that they saw were musicals of the time that were really hot tickets, you know. And what was really nice about it, it was when Broadway was really Broadway, you know, you got dressed up to go out and it was, you know, and, uh, Julie Andrews was in one theater and Mary Martin was in another theater and um, Ethel Merman was in one, you know what I'm saying, Broadway was the boulevard, you know, and um, they used to bring me home the cast album of whatever show they saw that night. They knew, my mother especially, they knew I was going to do this. They knew I was a musician. They just didn't know how it was going to come about. They didn't know when, but you know how your parents know who you are. And, and my parents knew who I was, but they just, they didn't know it was going to come around, you know, like this way. And uh, when I was 12 years old, my parents sent me to sleepaway camp and I've been to sleepaway camp since I was like six, five, ridiculous. Cause we were three sisters. We all went to camp together. This one particular summer, I just didn't want to stay. And it was the a visiting day for the parents. They came up to the camp, like the halfway point. 
and I begged them to take me home. And they didn't want to take me home. And my aunt actually owned a bungalow colony and my cousins were there. So they took me out of camp and they let me go stay with my aunt. It was a place called East Pond, you know, in the Catskills. The next summer, I, I remember my parents saying, what are we gonna do with her? She won't go to camp. What are we gonna do? We can't leave her in Brooklyn in the heat in the summer. None of her friends are here. So my father said to my mother, you know, Joni, maybe what I'll do is I'll take like a, a beautiful hotel room at Tamarack, another hotel in the Catskills. He says, and, and, and Susie, my little sister was too young to go to camp at the time. He says, it'll be Susie and, and Jilly will go to sleep away. That's my oldest sister. And then he said that I would go with my little sister and my mother up to the Catskills. My mother said, okay. They put me in, in day camp then. But it wasn't like sleepaway camp. It was like just something to do during the day. I went swimming. I met kids. We did what we wanted. One day I heard that there was a talent show and I entered the talent show on a dare. And I remember walking into the showroom. Now you had to understand the showrooms were enormous. They were no less than 1,500 seats a showroom. Some were 3,000, some were 2,000. They were huge because everybody came up from the city and they were catering to all the Jewish New Yorkers that came up there for the summer, you know? And I walk into this showroom and I'm wearing a pair of shorts and a t-shirt, you know? And I walk in and they said, what are you doing here, little girl? And I said, now this you're gonna love. I didn't say, I'm here to be in the contest. I said, I'm here to win the contest. Big difference, right? So uh, I actually won the show. And in the audience that night, see how you never know how your life is gonna change, was a gentleman by the name of Herb Bernstein. And he was responsible for the hits with the Four Seasons and Lauren Nero and Dusty Springfield and uh, you know a lot of Tina Turner, you know, major people in the business. And he was in the audience. And uh, they gave me a standing ovation at the end of my number. I walk off stage at the end and in the dark, I see a man, it was Herb. He went backstage to meet me. And the first thing he said to me was, I got to talk to your parents. I said, you got to talk to my family. He says, yeah, I got to cut a demonstration record with you. Well, it turned out that that later that month or beginning of the next month to get my timing right, he was recording Merv Griffin. Merv Griffin had a huge show, big, big, big variety show. And he was recording Merv and he took me down to the session and he had me sing for Merv on the break. So now I had, a, I had a demo record. I was talking to MGM Records. Herbie got me a deal at MGM Records. And now I was meeting Merv Griffin. And this all happened in the course of like two months. And uh, Merv put me on right away and my career began in a click. And that's how I got started. It's kind of like a fairy tale. Yes, yes. And did your parents always sort of support you and encourage you doing this? This was shocking to them. 
This was shocking. I mean, they knew I was always going to do this, but this was really shocking to them because it happened, first of all, it happened very quick. It happened over a summer. I was a little kid. I was younger than you. And, you know, they expected camp <laughs> and they got show business. So, I mean, you know, it was shocking. But I have to tell you, you know, I was getting my shot and they were cool about it. They let me take my shot. And maybe in, in, in some way they thought, oh, it'll be a stage, it might be over. But when they saw the kind of reaction, you know who really knew it wasn't gonna be over? My father. Yeah. My father knew I was in this to stay. And did your voice sort of just come naturally to you or did you do a lot of training or how did that sort of work? It did, it did. But I trained her, I trained her, yeah. Yeah. And do you remember, I'd be curious to what you were singing that night in the Catskills one? I sang, who could I turn, to, who can I turn to? And I sang Moon River. And to this day, I keep those songs in my show. Yeah. And how did you sort of begin to build your repertoire of songs at such a young age? How did you find the songs? That well, were first of all, the songs that I always liked were standards. Now that's what was kind of interesting, you know? And maybe it was the training from my parents because they always brought me home those cast albums. So I was, I was sort of primed to listen to Broadway or standards because this is what my parents kept bringing home. And it's not that I didn't listen to contemporary music because I was listening to the Stones or I was listening to the Beatles. I was listening to what kids listen to. But what I, whatever I was drawn to vocally was always more challenging than that. It was always more serious, always more sophisticated. And I really think it's because of what my mother introduced me to at a very, very, very young age. And I should really tell you, my mother was a great singer. Oh. My mother sang on radio as a little girl. But I got to tell you, my mother was a shy person. And so I think show business wasn't really for her. You know, people think that, that because you're gonna be in show business, that talent is enough. What they don't really realize is that you have to have the temperament to be in this business. It's a, it's a business that's difficult. It's a business of rejection. It's a business of, oh, maybe it can happen. Maybe it won't happen. It's a business of letdowns. It's a business of sacrifice. It's a business of training and discipline, and it's not really for everyone. You give up, you know, it's funny, you give up a lot and you get a lot. It's a trade-off. So you really have to really, really super, super, super want to be here because you can't do it halfway. You know that. Yeah. So, so um, that was my beginning. And how did I build a repertoire? I was exposed to great music. And then I started working with Herb, who was a mature conductor and orchestrator and arranger who sold 40 million records. So he, he knew how to build a repertoire. So I had his expertise right there. But I, but I always sort of knew the direction I, or I thought I knew the direction I was going in, just sort of in my gut, Yeah, you know? So you're one of the rare stars who was a star as a child and then continued to be as an adult. And so why do you think that that was that you were able to and are able to? Make a transition into adulthood from yeah. childhood. Because I think one of the, and Herb talks about this a lot. You know, I'm still working with her all these years. Yeah, yeah. 
<clears throat> and I think one of the reasons why I was able to do that was because I never looked at the career like it was a child's career. I think I just looked at it like it was a career. Yeah. So there was really no grand adjustment for me internally to make as I got older, because I was always doing sophisticated work. And I was, in fact, I remember there was a talk show host by the name of Mike Douglas, and he had a big television show when I was a kid. It rivaled Merv Griffin. And um, I remember him saying to me, why do you always sing these old songs? You know, they're too old. No, 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 this is the way he put it. He says, why do you always sing these songs that are too old for you? That, and I said, and I was young, I was your age. And I said, I thought about it. And I said, no, no, Mr. Douglas, no. I, I don't sing songs that are too old for me. I sing songs that are old. There's a difference. Yeah. And, and you being a, a bright, sophisticated person, understand that. But there were folks out there that kind of didn't. But internally for me, because it really always starts with you, no matter what age you are, <clears throat> how you see yourself, how you define, and how you define things do change as you get older, but, but you do have an essence. And I, I never saw myself as a kid doing this. I saw myself as a pro doing this. Yeah. Maybe, is that helpful? Oh, yes. And so I'd love to talk about Johnny Carson and Ed Sullivan, which were two very famous shows that you were on a few times. They had a very, very, very big impact on my, on my life. Um, Johnny Carson was here in New York and not in L.A. at the time. See, all, I live in New York and all these shows were coming out of New York at that time. So I was very, very, very lucky. I mean, they were all here. I had access. And Herbie was terrific. He was, he was able to access all these people. And uh, they were interested in my work. And when they heard my recordings, because they were sophisticated recordings, they were even more interested. And I, and I got to be on every one of these shows and I got to know Johnny Carson and I got to know Murph Griffin and I got to know Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan was a wonderful man. And he lived in a place called the Demonical Hotel. And, and uh, it's a different hotel now. In fact, Michael Feinstein had his, his room there at one time. And uh, he lived there. And I used to go up to his house and he used to talk to me about what I'm going to sing on his show on that Sunday night. I used to do my homework in his apartment. Oh. And, yeah. <laughs> his wife would come to the door and say, honey, I'll, I'll give you a little snack. Mr. Sullivan will be right out to talk with you. Do your homework. Read you. I said, I'll do my homework while I wait for him. And I do, do my homework and he would come in and I'd be finishing my homework. And then we talk about this major show you know it was a strange life because on one hand I was doing my homework and on the other hand I'm talking to Ed Sullivan about doing the biggest variety show in the world that Sunday night which by the way was live all the shows were live in those days there was no take two you were on you eight o'clock came and you were on <laughs> you know there was no taking it back no editing it no fixing things no photoshops no nothing you walked out it was eight o'clock and the entire world was seeing you. And that was the way it was. Did you ever end up having any sort of like mishap or anything like that on? I always had mishaps, but I learned how to live with them. You know, that's the funny thing about 
working on your feet when you're really young. You learn how to deal with the crazy things that happen. Lights go out, mics go dead. You know, it's live. Um, Somebody walks across the stage and they shouldn't have. You forget a lyric. The band didn't come in where you thought they were coming in. I mean, there's always stuff, but you learn how to work over it. And they do that on Broadway too. Oh yeah. You know, when you work live, you you learn how to navigate hell. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? It's, you learn. It's part of your life. You you don't even get nervous anymore about it. You just accept it. <laughs> it's just the way it is. This time, how much sort of decision-making power did you have for your own sort of career? Or was that mostly with Herb Bernstein? Or- well, Herbie, Herbie created opportunities for me. And they were opportunities that I desperately wanted. And so the the real challenges were coming where he was creating me to be ready for these experiences because I had never done anything before. So he he had to make sure that I was going to be ready for prime time, you know. Julie had to be ready for prime time. She had to know how to walk on the stage. She had to know which cameras she was looking in. She had to know how to work a microphone. You know, I had to learn the songs. Uh, And each week, Merv would put me on and he wanted new material. So every week I was learning new songs. So, you know, I was always in training, always, always. And so I suppose, you know what it's kind of like? You throw a kid in the water and that's how you teach him how to swim. I was that kid they threw in the water and said, swim. And I was just lucky that I had Herb to guide me and that I had very good instincts artistically. What was very cool about that is I never came off like a pretentious kid who was over-rehearsed or over-slick. It was always very organic. I look at my tapes today and, and, and I was very organic. I was not I was not obnoxiously over slick. I never like seeing kids like that because I never feel like, you know, when you talk about making your own decisions artistically, um, that's that's not a good artistic decision, you know? Yeah. You, you always need to work from the inside out, not the outside in. And, and that's always been my thing. And how did your style of performing sort of develop? Well, you- first I started on TV because I couldn't work nightclubs because I was too young. And there were a lot of places that, you know, that were concert halls that, you know, had different child labor laws um, depending upon the state. But the one state that I could work in at any age was Las Vegas. Oh, Nevada. Nevada had no child labor law. I know it was insane. I could work Nevada. I could work Reno, I could work Tahoe, I could work Vegas, but I couldn't work New York until I was 18. And I'm actually on record as being the youngest performer who ever debuted her, uh, her one woman show in New York. Cause I wasn't quite 18. I was, I was a couple of weeks short of my 18th birthday but they allowed me to do it anyway. At the Copacabana here in New York. And among the many shows that you were on was the Carol Burnett show, which I would love to ask you about since that's another beloved show. Well, Carol was a difficult show for me because Carol's show basically catered to very seasoned 
Broadway artists who could sing, dance, do skits, this, that, you know, the whole nine yards. I was a vocalist. I was 15, 16 years old when I did her show. And uh, I didn't have a lot of exposure to that kind of uh, triple threat kind of thing. And um, I had to learn on my feet. There I was again, learning on my feet, how to move, how to pick up from a choreographer, how to, how to take direction in a group. I was always working on my own, you know, how to deliver lines, how to be in skits. And I mean, I, I pulled it off and I learned how to do it, but that's the beauty of youth, you know, you learn, yeah. you learn. And I, I, quite frankly, I'm, I'm glad to say that I'm still kind of that person today. I haven't lost that. I, I still look forward to that. But I remember that being my first exposure to those kinds of challenges, the multi-challenges that I never had to worry about before. And then the next time I was exposed to it was on the Jim Neighbors show because oh. he had a CBS contract in those days. So I had Ed Sullivan, I had Carol Burnett, <clears throat> I had uh, Jim Neighbors and all the CBS affiliate shows and I was doing them all. And um, I was doing other shows on other networks too, but they had a, a huge bulk of the variety shows. So one by one, I mean, I was knocking them off and I was learning how to do it. And I don't even know how to answer the question because I just learned on my feet. I was one of those vaudevillian kids who learned on her feet how to use herself. And then what happened was years later, maybe a year or two later, I studied formally. So I started to hone my craft differently. And you ask how I built a repertoire and how I sustained and how I moved forward. And, and I think that was from now I started to incorporate what Herb was teaching me to what I was learning on my feet on my own, my instincts, my gut. And then I brought in great teachers. Herbie got me with really great acting teachers, dance teachers, vocal. But remember, I was very young and a lot of people didn't want to work with me until I was a little bit older. It was the transitional voice. They were afraid they could hurt it, blah, 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 blah. But my teacher, Lydia Summers and Willard Young were the greatest and they took that shot in working with me very, very early on. And I learned something about studying that no matter how great a natural instrument you might have, or how, how great the people are around you, like I had heard. You still have to study because if you don't protect what you have, you're gonna find that you're gonna get great opportunities and you're gonna go on these great tours and great things are gonna happen, but you're gonna be out of the tour more than you're in the tour. Why? Because you're not gonna know how to protect your throat and your instrument, how to pace yourself, how to really use your instrument. And that was the saving grace of my career, other than meeting her, was having great, great, great teachers who protected what could have gotten damaged at a very early age. Yeah. So those are the stages that I had. But did you ever sort of experience the like darker side to being a child star or anything? I like saw that? a lot of it. Oh. I saw a lot of it, I have to tell you. And I went to, I was supposed to go to school in Brooklyn uh, for high school, 
but I couldn't go because I was out of school too much. And they had suggested to my parents that I should either go to a professional children's school or I should go to a private school. And they picked a private school. You know, it's funny how my parents always picked the most unpretentious thing for me, or at least that's what they tried to do because they wanted me to have as normal a life as I could have. But I, I wound up going to a, a place called Lincoln Square Academy in New York, which was a great school. It was a private school, but it happened to have a lot of professional kids who were in the same situation as me. And I saw a lot of kids who couldn't deal with the pressures of the industry. Yeah. I saw a lot of kids whose parents abused their careers for their own gain financially. I saw a lot of kids that went on drugs. There was one girl, she was a, I, I, I won't mention her name because I respect her so much, but she was a true superstar at the time. And she, she, she got mixed up in drugs and it ended her career. I mean, she's still working, but nothing compared to what it should be today. I mean, she, she, she was a true star and uh, she broke down. She broke down. There were a lot of kids like that. I, for some reason, by the grace of the almighty, look, I had a great family. I had parents that had instilled me with, I think, really fine character. I kept all my old friends from Brooklyn. I was close to my sisters and my family. Herb was a very stable force for me. He was a nice kid from Brooklyn. Turned out my grandmother knew his mother. You know, it was one of those things. <laughs> Jewish geography, you know. And um, I had stable forces around me. Even the uh, people who trained me, Lydia and Willard, were very straight up, good family type people. They considered me as one of their children. So I wasn't put out there in a scary way. Yeah. And if I didn't want to do something or I couldn't do something, or if I got sick and couldn't do something, I didn't have parents that were pushing me on stage. My needs were very well taken care of. But I have to tell you something, I saw a lot of kids get destroyed. And I'll tell you what destroyed them too. The pushy parents. Yeah. These stage parents, I gotta tell you, honey, they were the killer of great instruments. It was so sad to see. And these kids, they were young and all they wanted to do was please the parents and please the directors and the producers. And meanwhile, it was the beginning of their downfall. The stress was way too much for these kids. Um, their parents always made them feel like they were failing. Can you imagine? Terrible, just terrible. And not everybody was like that. There were some kids that did very well and they were successful and they transitioned quite well. And some stayed in the business, some didn't, but they weren't destroyed. But there were a hell of a lot that were. I was extremely, extremely, in fact, out of everything that I could say I was lucky about in my career, that was probably the luckiest thing that I had bestowed upon me was the protection. And I'd love to ask how your CD that you did at, I believe the age of 14 came about your first CD. Well, they were called records at those times. Yes. 
they weren't CDs didn't happen for another 20 years. <laughs> they were records, honey. <laughs> and they were fun to make. And we used to do them live with big orchestras. We didn't do them sort of piecemeal and overdubbing and all the, you know, different techniques that they use now. But we went in and it was orchestra day, you know. And even the radio shows that we did were live with uh, uh, orchestras in the studios. And when you listened, you heard it live with orchestra. They were, they were amazing times, I have to tell you. They were amazing times. You met the most fascinating people with the most fascinating uh, histories. You know, I, I worked with a, a drummer that used to work with Billie Holiday and mm -hmm. Ella Fitzgerald, and he worked in the Basie Band. And I mean, I worked with people that had incredible pedigree, you know, and, and, and experience in the industry. And that comes what you learn and what you do. You, know, you work with people that are really great and that are a lot greater than you, okay? It makes your game go way up. You know, it's like playing tennis and you're gonna play with a pro now. You better play a good game, right? <laughs> well, that's what it was like when I was a kid and I used to do these sessions because I had my, my game had to be as high. And, and, and the way it was as high as it could be is I was listening. I was, I was taking in every single morsel of what was going on in that room. I was so happy to be there. See, I was really born to do this. This yes. was my, you know something about that because that's where you are, right? Yes, yeah. yes. And that's the way I was. I was just like that. You know, you and I had that same connection because it's, it's this thing that's sort of unspoken. It's just known. You just know. Everything I did was actually like that. And I'd be curious to know what was some of the most valuable advice or lessons that you learned from these pros who you were working with? Love what you do. Yes. Care about what you do. Because, you know, it's, it's a piece of your life and it represents you. It is not only your talent, but it's your character. It's everything about you. It's how you define yourself. And it's important. All these moments are important. And you know what's interesting about the internet and so forth and so on? You know, you think that the shows that you did 40 years ago or 30 years ago, that nobody's ever going to see again. And all of a sudden, they're back. I'm seeing them again. Either they're on MeTV or Get TV or uh, a podcast such as yours. You know what I'm saying? It's, they, they're back. And, and all those moments that I cared so much about, I'm so grateful that I did care the way I cared because when I see them today, they hold up and you could see the care and the, and the love in the work. And, and those are the things that I saw and that I learned from the great pros. They really loved what they were doing. They were really dedicated to it. And they, their ability to hone their craft and learn never ended. It never ended, no matter how big a star they were. They were always learning and they always wanted to be better. And when you're around people like that, your level of work becomes that or you'll never survive it. You can't survive working with them if you're not. You have to live up to what not only they expect, but the rules of the game. And I learned so much watching how they prepare. 
but most of it comes from the deep love that they had for this business and their craft. And if you don't love it, you can't do it. It takes too much. And more than how to hold a note or where to find your light, because I learned all those things from Frank Sinatra and Bob Hope. And, you know, I learned all these things from Merv Griffin on television and recording things from Herbie, but, but the essence of why you do it is because you love it so much. And it has to be right. It just has to be. And that's what I learned from that. Was, was acting on Broadway and on film something that held interest for you at that point or did that not come till later? It's so funny that you should be asking me this. I'll tell you what I just saw. And you can go on my Facebook page, by the way, and see it. There's, just, there's a, a, a clip from a show called What's My Line? Oh. It's an old, old, old show. They might have brought it back, but I don't know. And I was, I, I was barely 18. I was 17 and 18 years old when I did. I think I had just turned 18. And they asked me this question when I was 18. It's so funny. They said, how do you feel about, you know, uh, going on Broadway or, or working in film as an actor and blah, 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 blah. And I hadn't done it yet. And I said, oh, I'm getting ready. Oh, I'm prepared. I'm going wherever this business takes me. And they kind of said that. They weren't used to a kid being so sure. But you see, you know that. And I know that because we were kids that were so sure. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And it was strange to them, I suppose, to see it in a young person. Yeah. But I was ready to go to my acting classes. I was ready to go to my dance classes. I was ready to be ready. And so that's what I was doing at that time. I was getting ready to be ready. So that when that bell went off and a producer came along and said, hey, by the way, Julie, I'd like you to be in that movie with Elliot Gould for Disney. I'd like you to do that, Julie. I'd like you to have that starring role. I would be ready. The worst thing that can happen is when you get an opportunity and you're not ready. Oh, that's horrible. That's horrible. You never want that to happen. So on day one, I was getting ready. And that's what I was doing at that time. So yes, to answer your question, I could see myself doing that, but I knew I wasn't ready. I had to get ready. And lo and behold, when I was lucky enough to get some of those opportunities, I felt I was ready. I felt I was ready to take my shot. I mean, look, everybody's always nervous and everybody's always scared because you never know what's gonna happen with any project and how you're gonna look and how you're gonna be and are they gonna like it and am I gonna be good enough and blah, blah, blah. But at least when you've been trained and you've been on your feet, it gives you a little bit of confidence. And you, and you know how to access yourself and you know how to work and you, and you have a sense of <clears throat> how to work with other people. So then you can, then you can nose dive into it. Yes, yes. And so how did that movie, The Devil and Max Devlin with Elliot Gould come about? That was funny because I didn't even know the movie was being made. I was on the Merv Griffin show and Disney was putting together this project. And Elliot 
was put into the lead and they needed someone to work opposite Elliot. That was going to be me. And it also included music. And they hired Marvin Hamlish, Carol Sega, and Allie Willis, God rest her soul. She was wonderful. They hired Allie. And the director, one day, I was doing the Merv Griffin show. Actually, he did it from Las Vegas that week. I was on the West Coast. And the Merv Griffin show was on earlier on the West Coast than it was in New York City. And I was singing my songs and doing my thing and blah, 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 blah. And in another house, the producer was watching the Merv Griffin show that morning, afternoon, whenever they got it. And he was watching me sing and do my thing. And they both quickly ran to the phone and the director calls the producer and he says, I got the girl. He goes, no, 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 no. I got the girl. He goes, no, I'm telling you, I got the girl. He goes, no, well, look at both girls. One was watching it in his house. One was watching it in his house. <laughs> and they called me. And when I got back to New York, I had somehow heard from them. And they asked me to fly to Los Angeles to do a screen test. And they sent me the sides in, in New York. And you know, I ate, slept, and read these sides. You know I did. They gave me, I don't know, 10 days or less than two weeks or something like that. But I, I lived, I lived with these sides. I'd sleep at night with them on my head, hoping that they would formate on my brain. And I learned the songs that I went and met Marvin Hamlish and he taught me the songs and I recorded them on my little tape recorder and I flew out to LA and I did the screen test and they thanked me very much and they were wonderful and there were other girls filming a screen test that day as well by the way I wasn't the only one there I had competition I finished and Herbie went out to LA with me we went out to eat after we finished the screen test. We spent the whole day. We got up five o'clock that morning. We didn't get out of there till six o'clock at night. And we were exhausted. We flew out, you know, the night before on the red eye, don't ask. And Herbie said, let's go get something to eat before, you know, we pack. Because we, we had to go back to New York. And we took, actually, we took the red eye home. We took the 1030 flight home that night. We got into New York at six o'clock in the morning because you know what the time changed. We got to the apartments. He got to his apartment. I got to my apartment. And Herbie calls me. He said, what is it? We're not home. Ten minutes. He's calling me. I said, I dropped my luggage. The phone rings. It's Herbie. He said, what is it? He said, you're not going to believe it. I said, what? He said, we have to turn around and go back to L.A. I said, What? He said, we have to turn around and go right back to LA. There's a, a voice a, a message on my machine that you got the part. We got to turn around tomorrow and go back to LA. And that's exactly what happened. I got the movie. Wow. Oh. And it was such a funny feeling because on my way home, this is weird. On my way home, you know, I'm, I'm usually a very nervous flyer. And on my way home, I had such a peaceful feeling on that flight. It was unusually peaceful. I fell asleep on the flight. I never fall asleep on a flight. I'm too nervous to fall asleep on a flight. 
I got to New York, Herbie and I took a taxi into Manhattan. He went to his place, I went to my place. And then that phone call, we got to turn around and go back. You got the part. Instantly they, they chose me. And that's how I got the movie. And you've said many times in interviews how much you liked working for Disney. And why was the that? greatest, the greatest. Everything they do is right. Everything they do is pleasant. Everything they do is professional. Listen, you can trust them. If they say walk across the room on your tiptoes, do it. Because these people know what they are doing. They were so wonderful to work with. They were kind. They were considerate. They took care of their actors. If you felt unsure about something, they put you together with the people to help you through it. Yeah. In every single way, they have taste. They hire the best people in the business. They make you look 10 times better than you can look on your own. They, I learned so much from these people. And do you know, I am still friendly with the people that I met on that shoot. Oh. Yeah, I still, they became lifelong friends. And someone who you did perform with a lot from that was Marvin Hamlisham. So what was it like to work with him? Marvin was a genius. He was a temperamental and he could be very difficult, but he was a good man. He was a very good man. And again, going back to loving the work, loving your craft, nobody loved this business. Nobody loved his work and cared more than Marvin Hamish. He cared so much he could drive you crazy. I'm telling you the truth. I mean, I loved Marvin. Nobody loved Marvin more than me. But Marvin could be very difficult. But Marvin loved his work so much that you had to just love him for that, you know? Yeah. And I worked with Marvin after I did the film. Well, we did the film and then Marvin produced uh, music for me that was from the film. And so he was my producer and orchestrator on that. And, uh, and then we released music from the film. And then I worked again. I did a, sh a, a show called They're Playing Our Song. And I did it uh, in North Shore Theater, right outside Boston. A wonderful, wonderful, wonderful musical venue for theater. They've had the most professional people there and they had a lot of Broadway stars do shows there. It's a very important theater for musicals. And I did their playing our song there. And then the next time I saw Marvin, I was, again, crazy how things come. I was on vacation and I got a message. This is like years later. Like Marvin appears like every five, seven years of my life. You know what I'm saying? And, and my phone would ring. And there would be Marvin. And I'm on this vacation and I call in for my messages that day. And when I was on vacation, I didn't call in every day because I wanted a vacation. But this particular day, I don't know what it was. Something said, check your, check, check your voicemails. So I, I go into my phone. By then we have phones, okay? <laughs> and things are on CD and they're digital. We're, we're in modern times now. 
And I check my phone and it's Marvin. He goes, Jules, Jules, call me right away. It's me. He never says it's Marvin. He never leaves his phone number. <laughs> this is Marvin, okay? Hurry up, hurry up. You gotta call me, blah, boom, click. So I say, okay, okay, okay. So I happen to have Marvin's number memorized in my head anyway. I know I'm 20 years already. So I call him and I go, hey, what's up? He says, listen, I'm doing a, a series of shows Oh, and here's the, here's the craziest thing with Marvin. Most people, if they become principal pops conductor of an orchestra, maybe they'll get two or three, and that's a lot, okay? If you're principal pops conductor, it's a lot of work. You're booking a lot of shows, you're rehearsing a lot of shows. You got 9 million artists to, uh, to produce during the season. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work. And, and then you're doing stuff out of town with the orchestras. You know what that is, it's a lot of work. Now you're gonna do another orchestra in another town, in another state. You're flying all over the world. Okay, now you're gonna do a third one. It's like you have no life. Marvin Hamlish was principal pops conductor for like eight or nine orchestras. It was unheard of. Marvin, you know how Marvin slept? Marvin slept in an airplane going to the next town. That's where Marvin got his sleep. I would get on a flight with Marvin. We'd be going to Colorado, let's say from Washington. I'm just picking something because I know it's a long flight. The minute Marvin would buckle the seatbelt, he's out. He's, he's asleep for the night. That's when Marvin got his sleep. The man worked constantly to the point where it really was detrimental to his health. And he called and he asked me to, to tour with him and to, he asked me actually to do the, uh, the songbook of Streisand. And I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it because I felt I wanted to create my own path. There had been so many comparisons and I was finally getting away from that and finding my own way. And I was actually being asked to be a soloist at many, many, many different symphony orchestras at the time. So I didn't want to be pulled away from that because I thought maybe that could pull me away from that. He said, Jules, you know me. I'm not going to make you look bad. This is how we're going to do it. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're going to go out and we're gonna talk and they're gonna see the relationship between the two of us. And then you're gonna do some stuff because I was the rehearsal pianist at Funny Girl on Broadway. This is what he told me. He said, so I wanna be able to do pieces from what I used to rehearse. And I think that's great. And I got the orchestrations. He says, and you'll do those. He says, and then I'll bring Steve Brinberg on in, in the beginning beginning, he had this little girl, Lauren Frost, who toured with Barbara in the 93 or 94 tour. I can't remember. Maybe it was earlier than that. I can't remember. And um, he says, and then the second half of the show, I want you to come on and do standards and do stuff from your show. And I want to be your conductor on that. And we'll have her be on piano. So it'll, it'll be like this evening of standards, musical comedy, Funny girl, first half of the show, Brimberg, and, and I'll have some fun with him. And then you come back. 
He says, and then we close with happy days and it'll be a great show, Julie. And it won't come off like an imitation of something or a second class version of something. It's, it's just a tribute of, of, of great times in the theater and Barbara's music. And you're gonna love doing it. And just trust me, it's gonna come off well. I was scared. I was scared that it was gonna derail me. He promised me <clears throat> that it wouldn't and that he would really, really honor what I do. And our first show was at the Kennedy Center. We had four or five shows at the Kennedy Center and it was an enormous success for all of us. And we all got great reviews. And the interesting thing was, is that the critics really respected my position musically, which I was most afraid of. You know, I was most afraid that they wouldn't. And they did. So, you know, it, it also taught me, you know, if you, uh, if you confront something that's the big elephant in the room, sometimes it's the better thing for you. You know, the thing that's sitting there going, nah, 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 you know, and, and, if, you, and if you confront it, sometimes you're better off. And it really worked out. And we wound up touring together on and off, mostly on, more than off, for the next seven years. What turned out to be three shows at the Kennedy Center. He says, oh, I want to try this and we'll, 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 I love Marvin, we'll debut it at the Kennedy Center, Jules, you know. And um, we wound up doing this for seven years. And then my dear Marvin died. Yeah. Going into the eighth year, we lost Marvin. And uh, it was a sad time. Yeah. It was terribly, terribly. I still don't believe he's gone, you know. And sometime when I do things, I, I just hear him yelling at me, go Jules, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, um, he was a force yeah. and, and he was something that I don't think we're ever gonna see again. And since we are talking a bit about your stage work, I'd love to ask too about three of the uh, Broadway shows that you were involved or somewhat involved with, which were Evita and The Prince of Grand Street and Wild and Wonderful. Very crazy times. <clears throat> well, I wound up in Lady Years doing Catskills on Broadway. Yes. And uh, that was a fun show because as a kid, I came from the Catskills and that show was an enormous success. And then I wound up working with Walter Willison on his show called Options at Circle Rep. And then I wound up doing another show that was an experimental show at Playwrights Horizon um, called America Kicks Up, Kicks Up Its Heels. And that was kind of a, a workshop stage production kind of thing before Evita there was a show called The Prince of Grand Street. And they looked at everybody. They looked at everybody. And the director was Gene Sachs. And I was called back like five times for this show. And I thought, I was a kid at the time. I was very young. I was, Jesus, 16, 17 years old. And I thought, maybe I was a little older. I can't remember, I was very young. They kept calling me back, they kept calling me back. And I didn't understand, Julie, this is the process on Broadway. This is, this is how they torture people. <laughs> you know? And it got down to me and a lovely performer, lovely artist, good actress by the name of Neva Small. She actually became a friend of mine. And uh, Neva got the part. 
And I kind of learned, you know, in those days, you know, that's kind of the way the matzah crumbles, you know, it gets down to you and, 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 and this other person after they see a thousand girls. And it's, it's kind of like, if you watch the American Idol, you know, it gets down to two kids, right? And, and, but it did a lot for me and it taught a lot to me about process and it taught a lot to me about how to create characters and how to work with a script. And, and, and I, was, I was very young and Neva had been raised primarily doing shows. So she was really the right choice. She was really the right choice. And then the next time, I was called in to do a show. It was Avita. And they looked all over for Avita. I mean, they went to Europe. They went to the West Coast. They looked on the East Coast. They looked under your bed. All right. They looked at everybody. Everybody went up for Avita. Avita was like, you'd meet your friends in the street and they'd say, What do you do to what'd you do today? You went up for Avita? It's like everybody went up. Everybody was seen for Avita. But it but they weren't serious contenders. Yeah. I wound up being a very serious contender for Avita. And once again, I lost it to another veteran, Patty Lapone. But later that season, what happened to me was I got my contract with Disney. And it changed my life. I mean, I loved working for Disney because Disney became my home base. You know, one thing we didn't talk about is not only did I do the film Devil and Max Devlin with Bill Cosby and Elliot Gould, but I wound up and working with Marvin Hamlish for the first time, but I wound up doing soundtracks for them. There was a movie called Amy and I wound up doing that soundtrack for them. And I did a few other things for them. And then I did the soundtrack for Devil, Max Devlin. So I wound up doing a lot of work with Disney. And then you talked about Wild and Wonderful. Wild and Wonderful was interesting because that was a mess of a show. It was a mess, if I tell you a mess. And I was 15 or 16. That was when I was 15 or 16. Prince of Grand Street, I think it was about 19. But Wild and Wonderful was a mess. And that was my first experience ever being exposed to anything on Broadway as an artist. And it was so chaotic and it was so crazy. And they had a run through one day and it was coming toward the end when they were gonna do, way before they were gonna do dress rehearsals. And Herbie came down to the run through and he pulled me out of the show. He pulled me out of that show faster than you could say your name. And he said, I don't care what I have to do to get you out of that show. You're not gonna, you're not gonna open on Broadway in that show. And it got very ugly. They didn't like me. Herbie didn't like them. And I was somehow overnight out of that show. It was a chaotic mess. And, you know, it frightened me because I thought it was my first exposure to anything in the theater. And I thought, oh, my God, are these people all crazy? Is this what it, <laughs> I didn't know. But they had a lot of great people in that show. But it was a chaotic mess and it opened and closed in one night with another artist in the lead. I think her name was Laura McDuffie, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know how I remember these things. Don't ask me what I ate for breakfast today, but I remember these things. And um, she was a wonderful artist who was trapped in a terrible show. Yeah. 
and um, they had great people, great dancers were in that show. Ron Farella, who was a wonderful choreographer, a lot of great people were in that show. You know who else was in that show? Great dancer. Why am I going for uh, Anne Ranking? Anne Ranking. She was one of the thank you. See, you have a better memory than me. Anne, Anne Ranking was in that show and she was a lead dancer. She didn't have anything to do in the show, you know, I mean, in terms of character. But I mean, they had good, but it was a mess. Well, I have to tell you, for years, I didn't want to be near Broadway because I thought everybody on Broadway was crazy. I really did. But you know, you grow up and you and you start learning and I got exposed to other people that were wonderful. And then and then I got a little older and like I said, I, I, I did their playing our song and then I did Catskills on Broadway and then I did my own one woman show on the road. And then and I worked with Walter Willison and then I was over Rights Rising and I saw that there are people out there that do know what they're doing, God bless them. And uh, I was very, very fortunate to work with them. But I got very, very, very involved with Disney. And I really wanted yeah. to stay with them. And I, and I blessed those days because they were highlights of my life, my days with Disney. And I do definitely want to talk about your days in Las Vegas. And so how did that, that was another sort of phase of your career. And how did that begin? Well, you know, a lot of these phases wove in and out kind of simultaneously. I mean, I, I was working Vegas because remember I told you I could work Nevada as a baby. So nobody bothered me in Vegas. I worked Vegas from the time I was 13 up until just before the end of the pandemic, <laughs> when the pandemic began actually. So I have been working in Vegas over 50 years. Yeah. And um, I loved Vegas, but I saw Vegas at a time, Vegas was very different when I went to Vegas as a kid, because Vegas was the Vegas of Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack and uh, Lena Horn and Peggy Lee and uh, Sammy Davis and, you know, the greats. Tom Jones was considered, believe it or not, the newcomer in Vegas. And Diana Ross and Ann Margaret used to bring their production shows and Mitzi Gaynor. So, I mean, I, I worked Vegas when Vegas was Vegas. Yeah. And uh, I worked with Jimmy Durante in, at, the, at the Desert Inn. I worked with Frank Sinatra at Caesars. I developed a lifelong relationship, a friendship with Liberace at Caesars Palace. I worked with Milton Berle at Caesars. Uh, then I went over, years later, I went over to the Smith Center for the Performing Arts in Las Vegas. And uh, it was a very different Vegas by that time though. Yeah. It was a very different Vegas than, than I knew when, when I worked with Frank Sinatra. And you did a lot of these sort of opening things. So what I'd love to do is sort of go through some of the names of the people who you worked sure. with and ask you about a quick anything about them. So first is one of my favorites, which is George Burns. I'd love to know about. George was great. Um, I, I also worked in Vegas with Jimmy Durante, by the way. Uh, did I mention that I worked with Jimmy Durante at the uh, Desert Inn? Yeah, I worked with, with him at the desert. And George was a great guy. George was one in a million. Nobody was like George. 
George was actually very easygoing. He was one of the most easygoing people. He and Danny Thomas were the two most easygoing people that I ever worked with in my entire career. Uh, a Liberace I would put into that category, but I had a different relationship with Lee because we were so close. George was fun with a capital F. <laughs> he was the greatest. The first time I worked with George, was at Orange County Performing Arts Center in uh, Los Angeles. And I remember I wanted to make sure, being uh, the guest artist, that I wasn't gonna do too much time. The one thing you do have to do when you're a guest at somebody's show, you gotta get the ground rules. <laughs> you, got, you gotta make sure you do exactly what they need and it's, primarily it's their show, you're a guest. And I remember knocking on the door because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't doing too much time on the first half. I knock on the door and, and I hear Georgie go, who is it? I said, it's Julie. He goes, one second. And I go, and time keeps passing. And I go, George, you okay in there? He goes, one second. And I'm waiting and I'm waiting. I go, Georgie, are you okay in there? He goes, oh, God damn, come in. And he's sitting there in his tux jacket tux shirt, bow tie, and he's wearing these socks with these garters that are holding them up. And he doesn't have his pants on, but he has his pants over his lap. He was too old to get his pants on that fast. <laughs> and I'm like, partially like not looking, but I can't help not look because it's too hilarious. And he was not being obnoxious or what they call today aggressive in any way. It's, I don't know, 90 years old and couldn't stand <laughs> And I said, Georgie, with my hand over my face, I said, Georgie, how much time do you want me to do? And he goes, oh, for heaven's sakes, Julie, I trust you. Sing till you're finished. You're going to be fine. You're going to know when to get off the stage. And that was it. He didn't say do 40 minutes. He didn't say do 30 minutes. He didn't say do anything. Do whatever you want. You're going to know when to get off that stage. And you know what? Having that freedom of being really tuned in the way he asked me to be tuned in, I knew when to get off. He was absolutely positively correct. I picked the right arc, Herbie and I together. We picked the right arc to the show. We knew when to valley and get out. And it prepared George for a great entrance. You know, it warms them up. It warms the audience up. So, you know, I, I just love George. I wound up working with him a lot. And I was actually supposed to go to Atlantic City with him the week that he died. I was one of the last acts to ever work with George again. And it was for, uh, he was going to be going to Vegas to celebrate the 100th birthday. I remember something about that. But then he fell in his bathroom in Los Angeles. And I think he broke his hip. Or he did some real bad damage to himself. And he wound up going to the hospital. And he was in the intensive care unit for a long time. And he and I were supposed to work. Jeez, I'm trying to remember. Was it Harris or the Sahara? In Atlantic City, I'm trying to remember which hotel it was. I can't remember which hotel, but we were supposed to go to Atlantic City together and he never made the engagement. Yeah. And I think he died within a week or so 
around there, he, he, around that time he died. I felt horrid. Oh, he was such a sweetheart of a guy. You know, I think he was over a hundred. I think he was about 102, was he? How old was George when he died? I think he died 100, but I could be wrong. Let me see, because I remember he, there was the Vegas thing, and then there was my Atlantic City thing with him. And I was supposed to go to Atlantic City with him. And I remember Herbie and I talked about going into rehearsal for this show. And then I, I remember getting the message that he had passed. And you know, he used to take me to the Hillcrest Country Club for breakfast with Normie Brokaw. These guys were hilarious. And I used to go to the Hillcrest Country Club with him, Norman Brokaw, who was my agent, and Edward G. Robinson. Can you oh. believe it, how young I was? And I used to sit there and have bagels, lox, and cream cheese with George Burns and Edward G. Robinson at the Hillcrest Country Club in Los Angeles. That was a, that was a great time. But I had wonderful times with George. George was easygoing, very easygoing. Nothing. You talk about things going wrong on stage before. Nothing could go wrong with George because George would use every moment to do something spectacular. Yeah. One, one of the great improvisational artists in the world, I think, other than Mel Brooks, was, was George Burns. And also Carl Reiner. And of course, everyone will want to hear about Frank Sinatra, and so do I. Frank Sinatra was a very, very interesting man with a very complicated life. And he was actually a very good guy. And if he liked you, he'd give you the world. And he saw something in me. You know, when I, when I first met him, I wasn't quite 16 years old yet. And I remember him telling me that we had something in common. And I said, well, what's that? He said, well, when I was 15, he says, my mother got me my first professional job at the first big orchestra in New Jersey. I said, how old were you? He said, I was 15. He said, so see, we're kindred spirits. You know? And he saw how serious I was. See now, Mr. Sinatra would have loved you. He would have adored you because you're this young, wonderful person who is real serious and does his homework and, and loves what he does and, and has his heart in it and his intellect in it. You know, you're really putting your intellect into your work. My God, I mean, he would have loved you forever because that's the way he was all the way to the end. He never took this business for granted. And I absolutely adored that about him, other than the fact that he was very generous to me, highly generous. And you talk about somebody giving you advice. The last night that I saw him and I was saying goodbye to him, and I was, I was a little worried about him because I felt he was, it was time for him to, to get off his voice. And you know, he, was, he, he, was, he was already in his mid to late fifties at the time, but he had put in a lot of years, you know? And 
he was an awful nice man. He could be so generous. And I remember him taking me around. And I remember him giving me a hug and a kiss goodbye. And I remember thanking him so much for having me on the show. And he whispered in my ear and he said, Julie, sweetheart, don't do what I did. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Julie, I hurt myself in so many ways. Don't drink, don't smoke, take very good care of your instrument. You have a beautiful instrument, Julie. Please promise me that you will take good care of it. And he gave me a hug and a kiss. And that was the last time I saw him. Except for the fact that on my 18th birthday, he sent me photos of the marquee and photos of him and me oh. as a gift for my 18th birthday. When I opened the Copa, he sent it to me. He was a very nice man. But, you know, there were all kinds of conflicting stories about Sinatra. And I'm sure that some of them are true and some of them aren't. You know, I love when I hear all these people talk about Frank Sinatra and they never even stood in the same room as Frank Sinatra. You know, all these people that have so much to say about him and not one of them actually knew him, you know. But um, I, think, I think Frank had a good heart. Yeah. And if he trusted you and if he liked you, um, he could be a very, very, very good friend. Better than a good friend, a, a really loyal friend. And so um, Joan Rivers was another one that you? I loved Joan. I loved her so much. But you know, everybody thinks Joan Rivers was just a bunch of laughs, you know? The truth about, about Joan Rivers was she was a very serious writer. And she was a very serious artist. And she was very serious about trying to balance being a good mother and also succeeding in the industry. And I really liked her because she tried desperately to put her family first. Yeah. And I remember traveling with Joan on the road when I was in my early 20s, up until my mid 20s. And then I met her again years later, we were both friars and we used to see each other at the club all the time. I liked Joan a lot. I thought Joan was a very, very authentic person. And uh, the industry wasn't always rightfully kind to her. And they didn't always give her the credit that she so deserved. And there are so many women today that would not have careers had it not been for Joan Rivers. Yeah. Women like Joan Rivers, Toadie Fields, um, there were a lot of women out there that were, really should have gotten a lot more attention. But Joan was so smart. And uh, even after Edgar had died, she knew how to find herself. I don't know how Joan did it. I don't know how she resurrected this career out of being so badly treated in television. But she did. To me, she was my hero. And I swear, the day she died, I cried like a baby because I just felt so sad. She was one of the nicest people you could ever want to know, but people didn't understand Joan. Um, she could be funny and she could be a barrel of laughs and she could be 
you know, she could be the funniest person in the room. But in, in, in truth, she was a very, very sensitive and very serious person. And a lot of people don't know that about her. Um, the same way they didn't know that about Danny Tapanis and his, and his philanthropic legacy that he left. I mean, have you any idea how many people are alive today because Danny Thomas lived? I mean, people, people they, they just have no idea the goodness that was in that man. Yeah. It was pure goodness. He was one of the best people on this planet. I, I, I'm telling you, he was, he was a pure heart. And Liberace was a good man. And he started a foundation for young artists. People don't talk about that, but he did. And um, listen, I was, I was beyond lucky. I, I knew a, a lot of really bad people, I have to tell you. Um, cutthroat, bad, tough. But like I said, when we began to talk, I somehow gravitated. It was almost like a magnet was pulling me toward these sensational people. And I was with a wonderful agency that um, represented a lot of these people. And they took me on as a client. And so it was a natural fit when they co-billed me with these people. Listen, so much of what happened to me in my life was just such pure luck that I, 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 I can't be more grateful. I mean, yes, I worked very hard. I worked like a dog, but even being born to have a voice, even being born to have great parents and then Herb entered my life. And then I had these wonderful people take interest in me with everybody in the industry. They took interest in me. I mean, what a gift, you know? Somebody up there likes me. Yeah, yeah. And so I'd love to just um, ask about one or two more people, which is the first will be Bob Hope. Bob Hope. Bob Hope was a very smart man, but beyond show business. He was smart in real estate. The way Merv was, Merv was that way. You know, Merv owned hotels and radio stations and land. And, you know, some of these people went beyond the industry into these entrepreneurial ingenious endeavors that they made more money from their businesses than they made from being stars. Truly, truthfully, true. And um, Bob Hope was one of them. But Bob was uh, very philosophical about the industry. And he never took anything for granted. I mean, I sat in the, in the back of a limousine one time. He and I were working this big arena. You know, he was one of the first um, comics to work with arenas. You forget, in your generation, it's very common to go to an arena and see a show. When I grew up, it was outstanding for, for a singular artist to work an arena, unless they were, you know, Mario Lanza, Pavarotti, you know, you went to an arena to see a hockey game, you know, or, or a basketball game, maybe a, maybe a rock act. You'd go to see, you know, the Stones or somebody like that. But uh, it wasn't until years later, you know, 
Ronnie Delzina and all those great promoters and Graham, you know, put artists in these arenas. And we were working in an arena that night and it was a big, big deal. And we were down south of North Carolina, South Carolina, one of those places that we were working on the road and um, they were all wonderful, wonderful, wonderful cities that we got to work in. I was grateful to see my country too. And I was sitting in the back of the limo with them and I said, we're sold out tonight. Why are you knocking yourself out before the show to do this, this whole batch of interviews? You, you, they're gonna pick you up with a blotter. <laughs> I mean, we were doing one show after the next, and he wasn't a young man anymore, you know? He said, Julie, I'm gonna tell you something. Never take this for granted. The world is very funny and they can go and purchase a ticket anywhere. And the fact that they're coming to see our show, that's a big deal because they could have been somewhere else. And you never take publicity for granted and you never take the TV station for granted. And you never take the gentleman who's interviewing you for granted. He said, because we all work in tandem in this industry. And that's why the arena gets booked. Yeah. And it was a great lesson in how to be humble, but also how to market, how to stay in this industry. You know, it was never a surprise to me why these people were able to stay in the industry for 70, 80 years, you know? They were geniuses and they knew, and also they knew how to make transitions. You know, during this interview, you've been asking me about transitions. These people were masters at transitions. You know, they started out in vaudeville and ended up in film, in, in talkies. Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, if you wanted to learn about how to transition your life, and if you wanted to learn how to brand your business, pay attention to these guys because they were the masters. Yeah. And, and those are the kinds of things that I learned from Bob. Bob also taught me how to deliver lines, comic lines. He used to, he used to tutor me on the phone. He used to scare the hell out of me. He'd call me up and he'd say, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. And I'd say, please, please, Mr. Hope, let me at least get a pencil and paper. Oh, you'll remember it. I'll remember it. The man was giving me three pages of dialogue. You learned how to think very, very quick on your feet. You learned how to recover. You learned how to go forward. You learned how to do improvisations. It was like what I learned with Carol Burnett, how to use myself. And each person I worked with taught me a different thing about how to use yourself. And there was no school, no teacher, no course that could have taught you that. That was, you just get up and you learn it. You're kind of thrown to the wolves and you either survive, <laughs> comedy is hard. <laughs> uh, you either survive or you don't. And then the very last person I'd love to ask you about is Liberace, who I know you were talking about and having a friendship with him. Yeah, Lee, Lee was a spectacular human being. And uh, he fought so many battles in his life. And 
he had to, you know, when you come along at a different time, it, it, it changes your whole life, you know? And uh, I thought Lee was a spectacular person. I think he was one of the most generous people. I mean, I know I said that about some people before, but Lee was really, I mean, Lee would give you the keys to his house. You know what I mean? Uh, he was a friend for life. You could go to him for advice. He'd never forget your birthday. Uh, he became a, a family friend. He was dear friends with my father. He became dear friends with Herbie. I became dear friends with him and his brother. Um, I knew his sister, Angie. I knew his manager. His manager became friendly with Herbie. And we all be, we became like a family with Lee. And it was a very different relationship. Lee became like a, a member of my family. And, and, and when I lost, when the world lost, I say when I lost, because I still take it so personally, it's very hard to say goodbye to spectacular people. It really is. Um, you know you, you're in the presence of greatness. You know you're in the presence of someone who is one of a kind. And then when they become embedded in your heart and in your DNA, you know, um, it's tragic to lose them. I felt like I lost a member of my family when I lost Lee. And I will, I will never forget him. Everything I know about being a spectacular show person. I learned that from Lee. And Ray Arnett, his choreographer. Oh. I was dear friends with Ray Arnett as well. Ray died at 101. Oh. In fact, I'm looking at a card in my apartment that he sent me just before he passed. He sent me a little card. I, I loved these guys. They, they were uh, Lee and, and, and Mr. Sinatra and Danny and Carol Burnett. I, I was just the luckiest kid in Brooklyn. What can I tell you? And so I would love to ask a little more about your cabaret career as you began to get a little bit older too after, after yeah. being in Las Vegas. Well, I then, you know, I started developing my my own show, a one-woman show, and I started working with symphony orchestras and bringing my theme shows to cities all over the United States. I took my show to Israel. I, I've taken my show to England. I've taken my show to Canada. I've taken my show to Switzerland. I've taken it to the islands. I've taken my show all over the world. I, take, I performed in Israel so many times. It was, it was a wonderful time to work in Israel. Uh, you become a little bit more clear about who you are as a musician and the work you want to do and the legacy that you want to leave. And so much of you is your past. And so much of you are the people that you worked with that you take on stage with you every night. I know that might sound funny, but all of those people that I worked with come on stage with me every night. And all those things that I learned about who I was in working with them and the ways that I was challenged 
they're on stage with me every night. And then those songs that I wanna do today and the songs that I used to do yesterday and the way I create them as one show today. They're the songs of my life. Yeah. They're, the, they're the person that has evolved today. All the things that happened to me make up for the performer that I've become today. And so to bring us up to the present day, I'd love to ask what or if you have any sort of new ideas for shows or ideas for songs you'd like to sing after this is over, quarantine's over and everything's back. Yeah, I think that I'm going to be doing uh, songs that are great standards that I grew up with. And then the great, and the second half of the show will be the great contemporary standards that I've adapted today. Yeah. And how they, how they both found their way into my life through my youth and then through the contemporary time of today. And, uh, and creating a full circle with the American songbook, the songs of yesterday leading up to these songs today. Because the American songbook keeps evolving. And that's what people don't realize. It didn't stop in 1935. It didn't stop in 1950. It kept evolving. And so that's what the new show will be about. Yeah. And what do you think sort of makes a successful cabaret show? Your interaction with the audience. Yeah. yeah. The transference between you and the audience. The warmth between you and them. You know, there are people that sing better than other people. There are sing some people that don't sing as well as other people. But the one thing that you can't deny is the relationship that you have with an audience. Yeah. Even as a person who's a host of their own show, someone as yourself, the audience has to feel something with you to want to keep tuning in every week. It's not just the people that you're having a, on the show, but it's the way you engage the folks that are on your show and the way you engage your audience and the love that you have for what you do. Those are the things that keep you in the ball game. And uh, I wish that for you, my friend. I wish you many, many years in this business. You, you're a delight. Thank you, thank you. Well, this seems like a, a good place to end our conversation. And thank you so much for doing this. It's been just wonderful. You've been so generous and lovely. And I hope I see you at some of my shows. Oh, me too. Definitely. Yes. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And remember to come back next time when I am joined by two-time Emmy Award winner Sherman Yellen. Sherman Yellen won those awards for writing the TV series The Addams Chronicles and the pioneering movie about AIDS on Early Frost. On Broadway, he wrote the Tony-nominated book for the Rothschilds and collaborated again with Sheldon Harnick on Rex. He also contributed to the hit O Calcutta, and his play Strangers had a Broadway debut of its own. His subsequent musicals and plays include Josephine Tonight, Lucky in the Rain, and December Fools. He is also the 
the author of Spotless Memories of a New York Childhood and The Whore of Minsk, and is currently a political commentator for the Huffington Post. This is an interview you won't want to miss. Thanks for tuning in.